Hi, this is Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild, and you're listening to the Health Space Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive deep into health-related questions and topical issues relevant to us all. The world of health and medicine is messy, full of contrasting opinions and misleading advice. We will challenge myths and common misconceptions by exploring the evidence and speaking to leading experts along the way. We are physiotherapists and have been friends since university and share the same belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to access high quality, up-to-date health information. When it comes to health, we believe that better never ends. Thanks for listening and let's dive straight in. Right, welcome to another episode of the Health Space Podcast with me, Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild. Today we've got a uh, a new guest with us. We've been trying to line this up for a while. We had to let things give a little bit when we were training for our cycling challenge. And as such, we sort of postponed this one. But this is one we've been really looking forward to, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, it's also the first one since the first one we recorded that we're in the same room together actually recording it. So That's we'll true. see if that makes any changes. We'll see if we're bouncing off each other any better. But yeah, we've been uh, taking a bit of a break. We're going to release a, an episode about that separately as well. We'll probably talk about it a bit today. But yeah, it's good to good to have this one lined up and back on topic with with exercise. We wanted to carry on the season about exercise. So today we're talking about endurance uh, and specifically about injuries and how they might be managed with, in the endurance athlete. Yeah, today we've got uh, Mike James with us, the endurance physio. Um, I'm sure you all have seen him on Instagram, Twitter. He's everywhere. He's uh, courses, amazing content that he posts all the time and some really great um, free webinars as well. And I think you've got a free one coming up or you've got a new webinar coming up in the next week or two or something, uh, haven't you? So uh, that'll be interesting for our guys to take something from this and then also perhaps engage with um, that content you've got coming up. So we're looking forward to this, Mike. We wanted to dive into kind of a little bit about you, rather than us speak for you, perhaps you can give us a, a, a little bit of your background and kind of how you've got to where you are. Yeah, thanks, gents. Thanks for the invite. I've, I've loved all the episodes you've done so far, so I'm honoured to join you as, as one of your guests. My background's a long one, I'm getting on now, but I always class myself essentially as a, as a failed footballer. And what I mean by that is many years ago when the century started with a one and a nine, I, um, like most young boys, I dreamt of being a, a professional footballer and um, I came pretty close, but not quite made it. And on reflection, even in my early years, I started to realize that probably the thing that gave me an advantage of a lot was, was my fitness. And I, I blame one man solely for that. The club captain of my local team was one of these weirdos back in the 80s that was a runner. He would put the little shorts on, the little tight T-shirt, and he'd go for a run, and everyone thought he was crazy. And I suddenly started tagging along in my early teens with him, and um, I just fell in love with it. So naturally, when the um, I continued playing football for a long time after the, the professional dream died, but it became second fiddle very much to run in, cycling, and just, just finding things that were a challenge. Anything that people found uh, they couldn't do, I started doing. And then... That morphed into education and morphed into professions. So um, I ended up doing a, a sports science degree. I ended up starting a, a personal training business. And then I found that there was a, a role within the military where you could shout at people and get paid for it while they did exercise. So with, with no desire or background from a military family, I um, joined the Royal Air Force, became a physical training instructor. And then my career over the next sort of decade and a half morphed into everything and anything to do with fitness and then into exercise rehab and that's where I really sort of fell into the injury management side so um, I initially qualified as, as a, a remedial exercise instructor working with injured servicemen did a sports rehab degree and then finally when I left I did my um, I did a master's in physio to to get that tick in the box because at the time it was probably something I needed to do to, to open doors and then having spent a number of years working in all areas, occupational health, private care, NHS for a little bit as well, realized that that combination of, of you find out what you really want to do by the things you want to do, but also doing the things you find out you don't really want to do. And, um, and it just came, push came to shove probably five, six years ago where I thought, no, it's time to, time to specialize in, in the area that 
that motivates me and I'm passionate about. And that's when the endurance physio was born and, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. So, um, so my, my week's pretty eclectic right now. I, I am clinical for a couple of days. As you said earlier, I do a bit of teaching. I do a lot of coaching. I coach athletes as well. So a lot of my work is, is around performance enhancement and achieving goals, not just managing their injuries. So I have plenty of clients that I've seen for both. But then that sort of education platform to therapists, coaches, athletes themselves. And that's allowed me over the years to, um, to pretty much work with everything from Olympic level down to the, the novice park runner and, and everything in between. So, um, so I'm really fortunate. I'm really lucky. Uh, and I'm very happy that I can wake up every day motivated and driven to, to help the people that I enjoy helping. Do you know that I would say that your journey is almost uh, a bit further ahead than ours in that we just woke up one day and decided, do you know what, we really feel like we want to help people and, and do what really motivates us. And during lockdown last year, that's where this podcast was born in some ways of you know, talking to people who have more expertise than us, but talking about stuff that we're interested in that we think others can learn from. So yeah, it sound, sounds like you've really found what you love and, and gone for it. And I think so many people can can take take note from that, let alone all the other good stuff we're going to talk about today. But just finding what you love and really, really going for it. It is, it is. And, and you know, it's hard. For example, uh, when I when I left the military, I was in my early to mid thirties. We were married, we had a house and, you know, I couldn't have gone back to uni without the support of my wife, both emotionally, financially and, and everything in between. So there's a lot of luck along that journey, a lot of support. It's certainly not been a, a me flying by the seat of my pants, doing what, what I wanted to, you know, uh, circumstances dictate a lot along the way. And obviously you guys, similar position to me, families and young children and, and stuff. So, um, so it is tough. And, and as you say, sometimes you've got to take that risk and, and have that calculated risk of I'll work for someone a couple of days a week while I'm building this up. And then hopefully we can, we can take the, the leap of faith at some point, but it um, is, it, it definitely, I, I don't, I am so envious and so respectful of people who do a job that they're not passionate about because I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, the reason to wake up in the morning to, to help people is, is pretty much the thing that gets me going. Yeah. I feel the same way. I love my job, love what I do and quite lucky to, to have that. But at times I think it, it's emotionally draining at the same time because of that, because you put everything into it, you put your heart and soul into it as well. So yeah. Yeah. No, it's never why, switch off. It's why we moved, like we both, we did the same thing in terms of we, we, we did sports science as well. And, I think we both got to the end of that and was like okay this is really great and we want to take this somewhere and we both took a lot from it it was like okay but we're not quite sure of that direction and then you kind of link that together with a few of the other things like kind of what you've done but ours was in a kind of slightly shorter period you find that you want to help people you've got a skill but it's not quite the skill you need to open those doors as you mentioned and then you kind of you link them all together and you finally land somewhere like this and that's really great and really quite a journey really to get to this point but what's interesting for us initially is obviously you had your you was interested in your football and then you kind of switched into that endurance kind of uh, or into running sorry what kind of took you into the the next bit because you've done all sorts of challenges haven't you you've kind of really kind of pushed yourself into you know there's some I've seen some swimming challenges I've seen you post some running challenges I've seen you post some really big cycling challenges you kind of really pushed yourself in all sorts of domains what what took you into that region if that makes sense yeah no absolutely it does so I thrive on a challenge, um, as in a personal challenge, particularly things that either others think can't be done or um, things that I think, yeah, that I'm going to learn about myself. I, I think, and I could, I could only have answered this question this way within perhaps the last five years when you've, you get to that point in your life, you reflect about stuff a lot more. For all of my 20s and my 30s, while I accrued, as you say, that, that, that sort of bank of, of events, I was so focused on the goal of what I was doing that I never analyzed why I was really doing it. But actually, when I think about it now, it's the journey. It's the process of these challenges that is, is the fire in my belly. The, the journey of discovery to undertake a six, 12-month program to, to learn. And I think part of it's why I've switched a lot as well is because it's the learning process about a new event. It's, you know, as you said, you went from sort of marathons did a couple of hundred of them. Then I found Ironman. I found triathlon. And then there was this mythical Ironman 
Nobody does that. I'm talking early 2000s now. Now bloody everyone and their gran has done one. But, um, but it was like, okay, learn about that. And then there was channel swimming and then there's long distance cycling and then there's multi-day ultra runs. And, and every time it was just this journey of, okay, I'm, I'm absorbing myself and immersing myself into the event and, and, and the journey of discovery in, in how, and again, get to a point where you sort of go, okay, I've got a rough template in my head of, of other things I've done in the past that it's probably a bit like that. I'm sure you guys um, probably went on a really similar journey with the bike ride that you've just gone through. It's the whole, how do we fit the training in and around family and work? How do, what do we learn about the bike that we didn't know before? Okay, it's not just about getting on the bike. It's, right, it's the technical side of it. It's the mechanical side of it. What if we get punctures and problems there? How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to feed? Where are we going to rest? That, that, that whole journey for me is, is and was and still is the real reason why I sort of get absorbed into these events. I've noticed that you you started bringing your, your your kid along as well. Is is he is he getting into that himself? Is he is he enjoying yeah, that process yeah, yeah. too? Yeah, he doesn't have much choice. Bless him, and his little brother <laughs> catching him up now. But um, I I'm very deliberate and very calculated with my kids to expose them to uh, an active lifestyle. It is always trying to wrap it up in play and fun and no no pressure he's um he's following me down the football route he's a very talented my oldest boy who's, who's nine he's a very talented footballer he's been been picked up by a couple of teams and and he's, he's he's way better than i ever was but it's that whole it's fun let's try other things let's do other sports and activities i i always feel and it might sound a little bit sort of dramatic but the legacy I want to leave my kids is that they grow up to enjoy an active lifestyle as, as a basic, as a, as a fundamental component of their lives and pass that on to their kids and their kids and so on and so on. Seeing mum and dad, mum's quite a, an active person as well, seeing us do things and including them with us is, is a deliberate tactic on both our parts without that pressure of expectations or uh, performance yet. Project Gold Medal is alive and well. We're working <laughs> on that all the time, but yeah, just it is. It is a deliberate tactic to, and again, not just for them to have that psychology of an active life, then exposing them to the bone health stresses and the developmental stages of their skeletal system to be able to tolerate activity and load, which sounds like a very science experiment more than a kid. But yeah, it's something that we enjoy doing, and um, and again, they they um, they know that our dad's always on social media doing something or other. So we throw them in on that as well, so that they. Well, I think it's nice other people see that you do things with your kids and encourages them to do stuff with their kids, but also just like yeah, we we want to promote it to people that it's it's fun to do these these things. Yeah, we agree. Obviously, um, no 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 shock here. I, I think that's an interesting point because I, I think I, I've spoken about this kind of in a roundabout way, but maybe not um, as eloquently as you did there about the kind of them seeing you do it and trying to kind of, it's, it's not in a pressured way. It becomes that kind of subtle norm that, oh, like we, we exercise or we're active or we play and, and we do stuff that's physical. We don't just kind of sit and, and, and be passive and such. And I think that's really healthy because, you know, as we all do, you always look up to people and you tend to follow, right? Irrelevant of how old you are. You know, I still... Um, I still catch myself doing the same things with people, you know, your peers that are perhaps are older than you and leading the way. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I'm trying to get them to want to do it. Cool. So it's on one hand that it's, it's something they do. Now I coach their football teams, both of them. And um, post pandemic, when training started, there was six and nine year old kids who were unfit. And you could see the kids that had been active through the pandemic and the ones who hadn't. And these were, these were children that would fall into the active parameters because they're involved in sports and team sports. But you could see that there was an element that were active outside of those organized sports. And then there were some that wasn't. And, um, you know, we live about a, probably about a mile out of the town center. So just silly little things like, you know, let's walk into town and then not having them go, Oh, can we not just take the car? And then mourning the whole way down sort of thing. They're little things, but they're, they're milestones that I tick off as in, yeah, cool. It's, we're going in the right direction with this. Is there, is there a link between that you're aware of, of being active, playing lots of different sports and 
sort of injury risk when you're a bit older or, or sort of career longevity, that kind of thing. Is there, because we're talking about that now, we're talking about that yeah. having an active childhood. Does that, does that carry over into adulthood in any way? So what I've seen on um, some of the research I've done, and, and this is for other presentations rather than fatherhood, um, I tend not to research about them, but, um, but I know from a, like from a performance point of view, we're seeing that, you know, we're starting to see the evidence reveal itself that early specialization is probably not the best thing. And, and that diversity and exposure to more things is, is better for them physically in the long run, um, both performance wise and just general health. What I have seen a lot of, which has fascinated me over the years, is the life effects of activity in the young age. And the Yanks have got some really good studies where they've done these sort of um, longitudinal sort of perspective stuff where children that are active in younger life get better degrees, get better jobs, have more successful marriages, live longer. Uh, And similarly, on the flip side, the ones who aren't tend to get divorced more have poor relationship people uh, with people tend to move jobs and get lower paid incomes and, and there's that real sort of correlation through life i'm sure there's obviously other factors that, that play a part on both sides of that fence but we are starting to see that stuff emerge now and i think some of it is because we're getting better it's not a taboo subject to talk about it's okay it's okay to talk about people you know look it, it some people need to be more active because these are the negative things that will happen if they don't Obviously, there's, there's populations and socio demographics, socioeconomic demographics who would still dip their heads when, when you have those conversations about it because they probably know they're not doing the stuff that they should be doing. But um, I know certainly in, in clinic and in a little bit of a couple of years ago, I did, um, did some NHS work and sort of FCP role and um, I've absolutely found myself being more comfortable talking to families about that sort of a wider aspect of healthcare than than just the thing that someone was in for or with someone who had something else. I think physio really is getting a lot bigger, isn't it? You know, you know, we're, we're all physios, and, and I think that our role in health is more than just about dealing with an injury at that moment. It's it's so much bigger. We do have a responsibility to engage with people and to to try and encourage them to live a healthy life. I think that that's becoming really clear, and and, and not even just people seem to want to do that most a lot of clinicians seem to want to go into the profession to do that to help lots of people but to help the wider the wider public and mm. on a grand scale which is great to hear yeah. and i think we fit the mold nicely as well because there's still probably in, and certainly i think in the younger generations there's a barrier between like a gp and a patient often you know they're, they're, they're the givers of medicine and the referrers of scans when needed but i don't really want to talk to my doc about my health unless I'm worried about my health. And then there's the fitness world that probably can help as well with this message, but, but don't have, sometimes don't have the, the time or the reach or the, the sort of um, relationship that we have. And, and, and I think we do. And again, you've only got to think, I mean, if we spread it outside physio and just say therapists of the world, imagine if you started adding up how many people therapists speak to, how many times a day, how many times a week, how many times a month. We're talking millions of contacts a week that we have the opportunity to push good health messages to. Yeah, the big thing is we have the time as well often. And often a lot of those situations, you know, I know not every clinic is, is, is as such, but where we work, we get, you know, an hour initial assessment and a half an hour follow-up, which I know doesn't happen everywhere. And, and, and I appreciate that because I've worked in situations where it's 20 minutes and those. So, but a lot of times we have more time and I do think that helps, you know, you get to know people, don't you? And you get to exercise with them and go on a bit of a journey with them, which often, you know, others don't, you know, you can kind of share it a little bit with them almost as they get better or as they start to understand. So I think that's nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, Should we put our physio hat on a little bit, Charlie? Yeah. I think let's talk a bit about injuries uh, and the endurance athlete. So what, what traits seem to increase the risk of an endurance athlete? getting injured yeah really good question you could narrow this off and splinter this answer off into the runner the cyclist the triathlon and, and you don't really the triathlete but you don't really need to because ultimately they all come with a with a sort of pattern that you often recognize we've been well down the route of the the biomechanical problems and the, the footwear problems and and then we've started to to move across to the things like the um 
the training load and the training error stuff. But sometimes the it's the the traits is a really great word to use because a lot of the time it's more about the athlete's approach to things and their beliefs about things that that are really the the little sort of banana skins in some ways that they put in front of themselves. You know, that obviously they're they're not all as extreme as some of these examples, but largely, you know, an endurance athlete is a motivated beast. They are relentlessly pursuing goals, races, seasons, challenges, um, which is a positive. It's not a negative, but what can often happen with these is that they generally then with those goals, they strive for perfection rather than progress. So they fall into that sort of classic too much, too soon, too hard, too often, because they're so motivated to get to the goals that they're trying to get to. Despite being super motivated, they can often be quite low confidence about the things they're trying to do. So they take on these huge goals, but often they come with them with quite a negative attitude for them. So they slip into the adding extra bit to training on, not listening to the recovery days and the sort of recovery periods copying someone else's sessions because it looks a little bit better than the session I've got. And they tend then to just basically put themselves in, in um, silly situations based off their psychology largely where, um, where we see things. And certainly the big one of the last five to 10 years that I talk a lot about now is this whole fear of missing out. You know, I think the world generally for more has become a, a bit of an issue, but Let's take triathlon as an example. When I first started triathlon 20 years ago, it was almost hard to over-race, over-compete because there was a limited calendar and a limited availability. But pretty much now, if I wanted to race three times on a weekend, I'd find somewhere geographically with not too much problem to be able to do that. So you'll get these people who stumble into, to a, into a recreational endurance sport. And on year one, season one, they'll, pick half a dozen races that they want to do year two there's never this process of reviewing or revising or reflecting on what they've done well it's year one plus a few more added on year three comes along it's year one and year two and a couple more there's no giving it there's no adjustment so suddenly i'll get athletes in clinic with me and and they've just tried to race 17 races in the last six weeks or they've just taken on all these huge challenges I had a guy this this year actually. I had a guy who um, I've spoken to before for an injury, and he wanted to see me about some training plans. So um, his name was Mike as well, and, and I spoke to him and um, said, "Right, Mike, tell me tell me what you're after." And it was literally, I want to run London Marathon in April, then I want to do Ironman in July, and then I want to do an ultra race in October. Okay, cool. So my next question was, "What's the priority? What's the A race?" Well, all of them. So to explain what you mean. Well, I want, a, I want a PB in all of them. Okay, so so what's your PBs? And they were re, they were achievable PBs in their own right, but cumulatively just a crazy plan and a huge fluctuation in what would have had to happen to get to these things. And they, you know, in the nicest possible way, with the best of intentions, he was just self sabotaging his, his chances of achieving any one of those. And obviously, what we find most of the time is is a failure to perform, but it's normally caused by some injuries through training or mid-race. Then they get more frustrated because of these DNFs or because they, you know, I, I went from 20 hours training to 40 hours training, but I'm 20 minutes slower. Maybe if I do 60 hours training, I'll be mm-hmm. even better. So it's really simple things and, and we can sit back and see the wood for the trees relatively easily. But a lot of the time, it's just identifying that process to them rather than, fixing things or, or or getting ahead of, of the game in other ways. So um, so the traits are the really good thing. It's that relentless, obsessive, motivated person that lacks a little bit of confidence sometimes, but presents as a, as a really overconfident person who struggles to analyze and adapt things and is so fixated on, on getting to where they need to that they can't step back sometimes and, and see what's going on. Do you think the media have got a part to play in this of almost glamorizing the the crazy stuff? You know, you hear you hear about that stuff, don't you? Celebrities might do it or someone who's done something absolutely nuts and then someone goes, oh, maybe I could do that or something a bit crazier. Do you think there's a, there's a role to play there? 
absolutely. And and you'll you know the media is a really nice umbrella term for it, but you can splinter that off into those the social influencer. You know the the, the um the, like again, it, it's just how you pitch it, but taking uh, an 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 average Joe or Jane for want of a, of a better phrase and showing that they can do some of these crazy challenges is fantastically inspirational for all of us to, to see, particularly if you're someone who doesn't think you can do those. But it, it sometimes just detracts that, look, they might be a bit of an outlier, just like the elites are. There's a reason why they maybe have done that. What you also find then is we don't know the falls in, in and outs of these. We don't know um, exactly if what we read is, is the truth. You know, I, I recall a story years ago where I was um, I was away on a training camp, so I, I'd sort of gone on a on a sort of ad hoc basis with a with a triathlon team. And at the end of this training camp, we were waiting to come home, and one of the athletes was um, basically typing an article for a well-known triathlon magazine, and he was documenting the, the couple of weeks that we'd been through, and he was just lying. He'd added like thirty percent onto every session that we've done. So I was like, oh, what are you doing that for? And he was, you know, well, my rivals are all watching this. I need to need to psych them out. I need them to think I've done this. You got the famous, you know, Sebco, Steve Ovet uh, Christmas situation where um, Sebco did his training Christmas morning, Christmas lunch with his mum and dad. And he's sitting there going, oh, I should go out. Maybe Steve Ovet's doing another session. And even if he isn't, I've done two. And months later, when they ran into each other, he said, oh, I trained twice on, on Christmas Day, Steve. And and uh, Steve just turned around and went, oh, just twice, and left it at that. So you've got this peer pressure and this sort of um, situation. And then I think what else we do, which, which is something that I don't like, I think this is, is not a good thing, but we've started to have this atmosphere and attitude towards the glorious failure, you know, that this bite off more than you can chew, because if you can't do it, it doesn't matter. You dreamt big and you went for it. And, and as someone who really tries to perform and optimize performance, I, I really struggle to, to be comfy with that. You know, of course, there's always an element that your dreams may not be realized, and, and that's fine, and you should celebrate what you've been able to achieve there. But, um, but these, you know, there's, there's, I get people all the time. Mike, um, I want to do an Ironman. Can you train me for it? Yeah, tell me about the Ironman. It's six weeks away. Okay, where, where are you currently at? Oh, I'm not doing anything. Okay, so what, why? What's the, oh, well, my mate's doing it and I'll do it. And you know what? If I can't do it, I'd go. Well, that's not really a good place to be or, or a good motivator to drive forward. So, um, so I think all that's mixed in. That we, we celebrate failure rather than acknowledging that it's okay to fail. And then we reflect and learn and adjust moving forward rather than us being a failure if we fail. The social media influencer as as manifested itself in a good way the majority of the time but you can see how some people misinterpret it and then as you say this this whole um go big go home do some crazy challenges and you know what and and, and unfortunately it's got you know we've all seen the, the growth of social media if you want to rise above the rest right now now you need to do something silly so you'll see someone who's done 20 ironman in 20 days there's only one thing left for the next guy to do, and that's 21 in 21. And then someone else is going to have to do 22 in 22 because otherwise someone else has done it and been there and you're just, you're just not worth following then for some, for some people. We sort of, not quite as um, deep as this, but we had this chat with uh, one of our colleagues, Alex Quinn, and we, he, we, we were talking specifically about Strava, actually, and, and things like Strava. And we all, you know, I'm not sure about you actually, Mike, but, but we use Strava and... And, and, it, and it's helpful for a little training log and such. But you know, if you were to log into Strava and, and use it, perhaps like let's say Instagram and scroll, it could be really damaging as a, as a tool because it'd be very easy for me to look at what Charlie's doing, for instance, and, and say if we're training for the same event and he's doing four runs a week and I'm doing run, one run a week and I'm maybe not going as far or as fast, like that could derail me very quickly. So there's definitely these things out there which are almost like um, almost like traps in a way like they can be really useful only if you use them in a very specific way yeah but again you know you, you, it's this rites of passage almost i'm a new runner i'll use strava and i say to people all the time do you need to use strava why are you using strava and if you're gonna use it what are you doing with that data 
that's what baffles me all the time. You know, why are you recording it and what's the purpose of it? If you're not going to apply it in some ways, and this will be, you know, the three of us come from that sports science background. What are you, why are you, why are you collecting it for then? If you're not going to use it, what's it for? And, and most of them can't give you an answer for it. Oh, well, I just, that's why I was, that's why I do it. That's what everyone does. But again, and it's those variables that you can't, perhaps Charlie's had a day off work and you haven't. And he's fully hydrated and he's fed and he's recovered and you, you had a crap night's sleep because of the baby. Or you had a really long day in work and he, he didn't. Or uh, your mum's ill and his family are fine. And they're all these confounders that a little number on a screen doesn't identify. But more so a lot of the time, when I, when I see it in a really negative way, I completely agree about the person-to-person comparison. But it's the self-centered pressure that I see on people. Look at what I'm doing now to what I did a year ago. I'm awful. Or someone's going to watch my Strava and see this, so I have to run faster, even though I'm not ready to run faster or further or, or whatever. You know, I, I know plenty of pro and elite athletes who hold two Strava accounts. One is for their easy recovery sessions, and it's anonymous. That's what they use to log their training and feedback to their coaches. And then there's the public one. That's their hard sessions. Now, most average people don't know that that goes on. So they will look at, you know, athlete A, wherever that might be, and go, oh, my God, look at the sessions he or she's always doing. But they're not always doing that. They're just showing you the ones that they want you to see. And, and again, you know, if, um, like you, you said about you guys on the, on the same training plan, but what if someone from the club is on a completely different training plan to you for a different race in a different way, you're training for your C race of the season, their peak mid A race program. Why are you looking at apples and pears and getting stressed about it? It's, it's you know, so um, personally, I don't use it. I don't use Strava. I've got a Strava account and I'm just about to start my um, marathon to Saab plan again for the fourth bloody time. But, <laughs> um, but because of uh, a company that I'm working with who are looking to do some research on the data, I'll use Strava to log that, but it won't be public. I won't share it. And the only one I was thinking of doing is um, I did a little trial run with it last week and I'm, I'm way out of shape right now. I've had a pretty much just enjoyed doing bits and bobs over the summer. And I sat there and, and I mean, literally I'd done about four miles, about 11 minute mile pace. And I sat there going, I'm going to post this at some point. I want to show people that this is how shit I am sometimes. So when you see me posting faster ones, further ones in a few months' time, don't think that's where I just turned up and did it. You know, literally, this is how bad I'm running right now. So, um, so they're good things. As you say, they're good tools. They're great devices. They're brilliant things to have if utilized and applied in the right way. So if people get, get it wrong in training, what are the typical things that you're going to see in clinic? What's the, the, what's the effect of that in, in terms of injuries? Yeah, yeah, great job. So you're going to see these people coming in frustrated, annoyed, exacerbated about stuff, fearful, because they just, and unfortunately, we've, we've made this cross for our own back, but um, we are terrible at blowing people's hopes and ambitions and telling them to stop when often they don't need to. But these people often come in and they'll present one or two ways. They'll present with this sort of, fire that's just starting to spark you can catch them pretty early the warning signs are there you know normally they're the conscientious ones who've gone i don't want this to get worse so i'm just coming for a bit of a bit of advice but you'll see the ones where literally the house is burning down you know it's 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 raging symptomatic problems that have absolutely limited their function limited their training they've normally tried to self-write it completely themselves and made it even worse but normally it's, again, it's all training errors, you know, and, and it's the classic too much, too soon, too often, too many spikes in training because we misinterpret some of the messages we put out. You know, we, we, we can put something out like, look, spikes in training aren't necessarily bad. And the message gets read as cool. So I can do whatever spike I want then. Or I'm, a, I'm an experienced, well-conditioned athlete so I can spike myself and I'll be fine because it only happens to the novices. Like, well, no, not quite. So, um, so again, it's that whole, as any facet of healthcare is going, it's just that education bit about really just trying to p- 
put things into context and reason not only why things have got to where they are, but starting to give them this bigger picture of these are the little things we can do now that will absolutely right this ship. And you won't go over the waterfall and you won't sink. You'll be fine. But you just have to trust the process a little bit. Progress, not perfection, is a phrase I tend to use more and more with, with athletes all the time. Stop trying to be perfect with what you're doing because none of us are. You know, If you're going to be perfect with anything, be perfect with your rest and recovery and your consistency of training. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think that's a really great thing to go into, the rest and recovery bit, because we talk all the time about training, optimizing training, but actually optimizing training is just as much about recovery. Can you tell us a bit more detail about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my famous quote, which I stole from Shona Halson, who's, um, who, used to, who used to work for the AIS, and is, it was head of recovery for the Australian Olympic team for a long time. You know, you can only benefit from the training that you're recovering from. And um, that's such a powerful message. And in the endurance world, there is this well-established, long-standing misconception that more is better, that more is the answer of all your problems. So if I've got a performance plateau, I do more. I, I beast myself out of it. If I can't get to where I need to be, I do more. If I want to be better than someone else, I do more. And it's always more training. It's always harder training, more training, more intensity, more volume, um, more duration. But if we go back to that, you can only you only benefit from the training you're recovering from. You know, adaptation occurs when we're resting and recovering. Now, that's where the psychology of the athlete comes in that we have to be clever about is as a cohort of athletes, they're not the type of people who like to do nothing. But we try to give this one-size-fits-all approach to rest and recovery. You should take rest days. Well, potentially, in your really heavy period of training, yeah, we want a proper rest day in there. But if you're in an early part of your program or in a maintenance phase, and active recovery and just taking your foot off the gas is probably fine. And how I would give it to the same athlete at different points in the same season will be different to how I'd give it to different athletes at even the same time of the season. So, um, so it's really trying to get that message across that you have to get, take a step back to take two steps forward. Because if you don't, you've got a finite point before you're either not going to perform. And for me, you know, the, the, um, with an athlete who's not injured, I never really pick up that it's the fear of injury is the, the, the driving force. The, the force is the performance. If they're injured, obviously they want to get better and they want to get back into it as quick and as hard as they can. So, so it's grabbing them at those periods and just go, look, let's just take a bit of time and, and chat about a few things here. You know, I, I often, when I write programs for people, I offer uh, training plans, not rehab plans. Nearly everyone always goes, was that it? Is that all I'm doing? And I thought it'd be much more. You don't need to do much more. Look deeper in the plan. The plan will end up getting you where we need you to be. But it's not as much because I think generally we, we see these endurance athletes of whatever flavor, age and background. The big mistake they make always is they overestimate what they can do in the short term. And they absolutely underestimate what they can do in the long term. So I'm only doing 20 miles a week or I'm only doing that. Well, yeah, but look at your program. You're doing 2,000 miles over the next six months. It's that consistency in their training, that turning up, doing the business, embracing this monotonous approach to just getting things done. Training is to improve your performance, not to perform in. Yes, of course, we'll have hard sessions factored in depending on what you're, you're training for or or the stage of your program, but too many of them think they need to prove their fitness in training rather than in the race, and then wonder why I can't do it on race day for some reason. It's just because you smashed yourself for the last three weeks, thinking that's the only way to get to race day. And um, and it you know it 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 it's never um, an early learning for most. It's a trial and error process, and you know we mentioned at the start before we we started recording that sometimes making a mistake in something helps us get it right in the future and um and you know i'm often quite positive with an athlete who's new to an endurance event and has picked up a niggle okay cool here's the learning we didn't implement our rest and recovery as much and again let's rephrase how we're doing there's 168 hours in a week and all you're focused on is the 10 hours that you train 
or how you can go from 10 hours to 12 hours a week. And actually, we've already identified that with work, life, and other stuff, that's going to be really bloody tough for you to squeeze more training in. Let's focus on the 150 hours that you're not training. Tell me about your sleep. Well, you know, to be honest, I, uh, I work shifts. Uh, my sleep's a bit all over the place. We've got a new little one, and a couple of nights a week, I tend to binge watch Netflix until 3 a.m. Okay. So we're having a conversation where you're asking me, will compression socks make you better? Or should you buy a certain type of running shoe? Or what bike monitor you should get? Yet your sleep, which we know is the most powerful recovery tool that we've got access to, is fundamentally in bits. So let's focus. Leave the training as it is. Don't stress about doing things different in training. Let's focus on trying to go to bed a bit earlier, turning that telly off. Let's focus on how we sort of do the big things in our week. And we'll probably find that the 10 hours becomes absolute quality and more than enough training. So it's that flipping around what they think they need, which of course is exacerbated by the magazines and the media and everything else. It's the sexy stuff that sells. Telling someone to sleep better, sleep more, and adjust some of the other bigger, boring things in their life is is trying to sell them Dell Boy's car when they want to buy the shiny Ferrari, obviously. So it's that sort of approach to recovery and, and, and I say rest. It, it's period, you know, we've got awesome, awesome over the last few years, uh, understanding how to periodize training. The average athlete with no sports science or, or, or physiology background will pretty much be able to explain how to periodize their training plan. Nobody periodizes their recovery. If you're training harder, you need more recovery. If you're not training hard, you probably don't need. So let's not stress about what we're doing on, on the other days because you're all right. You don't need it. But when we need it, we'll up it and we'll focus on it more. The number of training plans I look at off people, the ones they pull offline, sometimes bespoke stuff, people don't have any recovery stuff factored in as a plan. It's always this afterthought. So these are, my, these are the stuff I'm doing. There's nothing in there, to, you know, and, and I often say to someone, whatever recovery people want to do, put it on your program because it's an, it's an active part of your plan. You know, recovery isn't, sometimes it is obviously, but it's not sitting on the telly, sitting on the sofa watching telly and doing nothing. It could be a walk. It could be something else. It could be a, some soft tissue work. It could be some mobility work. It could be whatever, but, um, but it's factored into the program and that, we don't do it. We're terrible at it. One of the things I bring up in sessions with patients all the time is that super compensation curve, um, which we all know from sports science, but I'll, we'll put it up on our Instagram because I think it's such a great thing for people to understand about the importance of recovery, about how your training puts you into fatigue and then it's the recovery and the rest that puts you up into adapt, adapting and, and being stronger, fitter, faster, and all yeah. that stuff. So and, I think and, that's such a, a great yeah, thing. And, and I actually use that slide in, in a lot of my um, talks that I do. Because the nice thing with that, which, which is the follow on when you explain that's the benefit of training. If you just take that next step across, then you know, we really um, misuse the term overtraining when it comes to, to endurance sports. In 25 years, I think I've seen three people who are genuinely overtrained. I've seen thousands that are overreaching, non-functional overreach, that bit where we're dipping, but we're not coming back up for that super compensation. We're just struggling. And we, we have this prolonged period of, of, of layoff to get us back up. But people don't identify it. It's the athlete who comes in going, yeah, I used to do loads of runs. And, and then, you know, I just didn't feel like it for a while. And I took a few months off and I'm just building back up now. So, okay. So you basically, you had a, a non-functional overreach that you've had to have this real long layoff to, to recover from. Months at a time sometimes. Now let's get it back into place. And it's not about bashing them with sports science and graphs and statistics. It's just interpreting that research into real simple things to go, yeah, you need to recover to get better. We call it super compensation. Sometimes it doesn't work very well and we struggle. Let's not beat you up or beat yourself up because you've been detrimental in your training. Let's learn from it. How did you feel when that was going on? oh yeah, I was a bit grumpy and I was a bit ratty with people and the slightest thing used to annoy me. Okay, cool. Remember that? Because that's a warning sign. You know, did it affect your sleep? Oh, my sleep was all over the place and I started having a beer in the night, which I wouldn't normally have. Okay, cool. There's some signs for us to really be positive about that. That's what we don't want to go into and we're going to monitor those as we get back. 
So it's just that day-to-day application of stuff rather than getting them to fill in complex forms or using those data that we've, we've charted about already. Well, you know, the cycle, COVID sort of moved a half marathon for me like five times. And I was just like, oh, it'll just move again. It'll move again. And didn't move. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to run this, but I've kind of raised money for this and kind of know I haven't really done enough training for this, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably pretty trained, aerobically untrained. Yeah. Obviously not specific to running load. I've done some running and in the end, I've ended up with like irritating my left knee. And I, I don't need anybody to kind of tell me how I've done it, but I was kind of chatting to somebody at work and I was chatting to a patient. It's like, oh, so you, oh, you, it's an overuse injury. And I was like, I hate the word, the term overuse. So it's kind of like, it's not really an overuse. If anything, it's an underuse injury because I just haven't done enough of that. But I think this is kind of quite similar to that overtraining thing. And you kind of get it wrong a lot of the time. It's not really that. It's just maybe the specificity or the loading or the recovery. Like it just wasn't right, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. And, and what we make, the mistake we make then is because we slightly get that terminology or, or framing of it wrong, the solutions get mucked up as well. So yeah. now it's like, oh, it's overload. So you need to do less than. Yeah, no, maybe it's underloader. We need to do a bit more. And there's going to be two absolutely polar opposite outcomes from those two approaches. Yeah, definitely. I found it very interesting. So obviously you learn a lot from your own injuries, right? Especially as a physio like we are. I found it really interesting to have... So normally the injuries I get are these sort of encephalopathy type, Achilles type, because I've got, I've got um, Crohn's disease, so I tend to pick up these kind of insertional type of problems, these sorts of problems. And obviously, I suppose iliotibial band types, it's in there, isn't it? It's kind of in and around. And it's funny, the different people you talk to kind of just, they just t- it's immediately like tag it onto other, fun- other things. I was chatting to another physio from somewhere else, and it's like, oh, well, you've got Crohn's, haven't you? So, you know, you, you've done a load of training. <laughs> and uh, it's like, well... Yeah, I suppose, but <laughs> it's kind of a mad way you can land with some of these conversations. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And, you know, yeah, then it's just digging in the weeds of, well, yeah, I have, and that's a possibility, but I analysed that training plan and it was sensible and it's fine and, it's, you know, we can probably push that one aside a little bit. Yeah, and that's, and that's key, right? Because I think you, you've been chatting about this. Like, very often we jump on the, like, you've done too much or you, I don't know, you've added heels and, and sometimes that is all true and that might be the problem, but we kind of like jump on the light, the, 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 the light that's blinking, you know, like the, the, the dashboard light. Sometimes we jump on that. And actually a lot of the time it might be a few little things that just need adjusting or, or it could be as simple as like you say there, you know, the sleep is just all over the place. Like I know. So obviously I've got an 18 month old daughter and, and sleep for her was just like, you know, she just, she's never been a particularly good sleeper she sleeps well now but at the start she kind of picked and chewed she didn't really sleep through the night she's a bit of a she sort of graze almost on sleep you know she'd have a bit here a bit there type stuff and you go through all these things to trying to get that but i was still trying to train for a kind of events at that time and obviously as you all do you judge yourself on your previous best right and and bear in mind i have the base knowledge you have some basic knowledge, right? You, you, you understand this stuff and you know you shouldn't do it, but, but you do. <laughs> but you do. And, and I remember running, um, I think I did like a 10K with a friend. Must, she must have been six months old, something like that. And I, was, I remember finishing it feeling like terrible. Like the one was terrible. I'd done loads of training for it as well. And I just remember stopping thinking, oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't miles off of what I'd done before. Obviously, I was trying to PV like an idiot. I remember just finishing thinking, I feel awful. <laughs> like it just like generally like my body just like, no, you just got like, you just, this is not what you should be doing. And now you look back and obviously you've got the benefit of hindsight. You sort of look back and you think it wasn't, I wasn't training enough. It wasn't, I wasn't training hard enough. It wasn't that I wasn't implementing a plan. It wasn't that I wasn't drinking enough water. It wasn't that I didn't have enough food. It was, that I was getting like four hours unbroken sleep, <laughs> you know, and then going to work and working a full day and coming home knackered and then thinking, oh, crap, I've got to run uh, six miles later or whatever it might be. Mm. And, then, and then again, you get something, you're like, so, so that, that situation happens and let's say they're a marathon runner. So then you'll see them and they're like, well, I don't do anything anymore. Okay, so what all that proved is, is that those times in your life, marathon's probably not the sensible thing. What about a 10K? Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, I could do a 10K. And you're like, really simple answers, but they just can't see it. In terms of 
athletes, what things do you try to put in place to sort of ensure a rehab journey might be successful? Because, you know, we sort of spoke about my journey and a few other little journeys there, but, you know, there's obviously a few trends that we all try to put in, but I wonder if there's anything specific to this sort of athlete that might be really helpful during their kind of recovery that, that you find is an, a nice strategy that people can maybe take from this. Yeah. The, um, the keywords education in the rehab plan, it, it, you know, I, I'm a massive fan of, of being as simple as where is the athlete now? Where do they need to get to? How much time have we got to get there? And obviously with some athletes, if they're in a season, if they're in a training plan and there's a, you know, I worked with a lady not so long ago, um, she was training for a marathon and in any other given circumstance, we probably would have pulled the plug on the race and, and just binned it. But the story behind it was that she'd lost her husband to cancer not too long before. And it was a charity event raising money for a cancer foundation. And the emotional attachment to get to the start line was, was going to supersede anything that we were going to be sensible about. So again, you know, understanding how to manage someone like that was key. And he'd managed the same athlete completely different at another time. The, the success of that plan was putting from the start the framework and understanding of what we have to do and how we're going to do it. And then getting them to understand the why of everything that's involved in that process. So, you know, the, these guys, particularly uh, runners and triathletes more so than some of the other endurance sports, they fundamentally normally need to understand the direct correlation of everything in a rehab plan to them getting back swim, bike, run. If you're lucky enough that you find an exercise or a rehab tool that directly looks and replicates what they're going to do, they're like, oh, cool, I'm, I'm all over this. But sometimes it might be a component of their training plan which, which, or rehab plan, which isn't really that well correlated to what we need them to, but breaking it down. Well, if we do this, it's going to lead to this, then that, and that's where we'll get you back to there. And if you understand a classic example in the non-endurance world is how we've changed our approach to ACL reconstructions. You know, if we can get the athlete to understand, look, let's wait a bit longer and get you back at nine months, not six months, because we fundamentally know from outcome measures that we're going to have less chance of, of, of re-injury. Once that... Um, seed has been sown with them they generally tend to be quite good at buying into it now of course you may have some athletes where they might we use the acl thing again maybe they're a champions league finalist and they need to get back for the final in five and a half months then n equals one kicks in and we adjust those people different but again with that particular athlete in that time scale we set a different unique framework and purpose for them so i think as therapists it, it's our onus and our our sort of role to take a step back sometimes from just doing things with people and setting the plan and the template and um understanding that that can adjust and it can change but you know we can't um we can't fast forward or trick healing times and nature there's an element of that you know, I, I'm also keen to most of my athletes to go, look, my role done properly isn't just to get you back. It's to get you back better than you were before. So if we're happy to adjust there to spend a bit more time getting you to this, then, then that's where I'd like to, to go. Um, and again, for me, I'm a bit lucky. I, can, I, I, I coach as well. So I, I wrap myself up in all that bubble. But is it a case that actually the best thing we can do to ensure the rehab journey is a success is to start collaborating and networking with maybe coaches, sports scientists, strength coaches, people like that, to have this more holistic approach to getting them back after we've, we've finished. Um, and then we facilitate everything in the middle of it. So um, it's, it's been actively involved in the process of the big picture stuff. Um, obviously, you do the minutiae along the way, and, and I'm a big, you know, when I, when I go sort of, and this is rehab or training, here's where you are, here's where we need to get to, this is how long we've got. I'm only looking at that first little micro cycle as far as the detail of what we're doing. I know roughly what we're aiming to do later on, but I don't plan it because I want to reassess you then and then plan the next bit again. Whereas I think a lot of the time we sort of copy and paste stuff, well, you know, yeah, week two we'll do this and week three we'll do that. 
and maybe we're holding them back. Maybe we're pushing them too hard. So, um, so most of it is communication, education, getting them to understand the why of everything we do and the bigger picture around the plan. It's not just settling that tendon, ligament, muscle, joint, whatever. It's understanding the why it happened in the first place. And again, some of them come in really simple. I've got a guy I'm treating right now who um, creamed in on a wet road on his bike. It's a pretty complex sort of clavicular fracture. You know, it's paint by number stuff. We're not really addressing training error or, or, or problems in the past, but with a lot of them, that's the thing I'm looking at. Okay. And then we miss things sometimes as well with uh, runners, a classic one. Number of runners I pick up as like a second opinion thing where they rehab them out of pain really well. And then they just let them go back and do their own thing running. Or even if they gave them some sort of structured running, they missed the bit in the middle of preparing them to run before they run. It's an easy out for us to blame the patient. Patient didn't do what I asked. Patient didn't stick to what I asked them to. And in the endurance world, we do have a popular population of people who are likely to not listen a bit more than others. They are keen and motivated, as we've discussed, and they'll push themselves a little bit harder sometimes. So if if, if he said to me, do this five, you know, he's happy for me to run three to five times a week for three to five miles. All they've heard is five and five. So I can run five times a week, five miles. They're only going to hear the upper, upper echelons of what we tell them. So just putting that into context with them and say, no, no, look, you know, just three, three times a week. And then we're going to do four, four times a week. And then we'll build you up to there. And if you can persevere with it for three or four weeks, I'm pretty certain you'll get back and stay back and we won't need to, to keep working on you. All oh, right. Now I buy into that. Now that makes sense. Yeah, I am. Um, I always say prep and process. Um, to my, I mean, I treat. I know you said ACL, and probably because you're chatting to me, but the, um, I talk about that a lot with them because I see lots that have either failed or come to me via somewhere else. And, and this is, I realise, this is an endurance athlete. But there's there's lots of really important things in this because you know it's it's kind of set out in stone. And kind of everyone thinks it's just a process. Everyone just thinks you do this at this time, that at that time. And I always just say to people when they ask questions, it's like. When can I do running is the classic, right? When can I run? Well, you'll run when you're ready. Well, you just need to, we need to prep to run. You need to follow your process. A lot of the time, you just get really bored of me saying the same thing. You know, oh, when can we, whatever it might be, when can we turn, return to change direction? Well, you know, once we prepared for it and you followed the process to get there. And it's yeah. the same with these endurance athletes, isn't it? It's like, when can I, say they're the cyclists, when can I cycle 10K? When can I cycle 10 miles? We're going to do this. When can I, incorporate heels when can i incorporate whatever it might be or hard reps mm. you, know, you just got to make sure you're, you're ready for it and, yeah and i think that's so key really to to talk about because i think a lot of us and i and, and as i said earlier we're guilty of like missing the fundamentals at time because we're too focused on the the macro cycle rather than the micro cycle you know mm. um or the goal and well, I think then, that's a really, sorry i was just going to say it's a really nice like take home almost from this is kind of you know sometimes we don't yes the big's important but some so is the small sometimes yeah, and you just yeah. got to find out with that person in front of you you got to find out whether it might be the small bit at the moment or the big bit and, and kind of find the right entry for that person couldn't agree more but we also then need to know and this is again we we can be so much better than this so if we know let's say we've gone for that let's go for milestones rather than time scales which is probably right for all things these days so we say to someone, when you're ready to run, but do we ourselves know what that actually means? What am I assessing to know if they're ready to run? You know, what are the forces involved with a single leg car phrase compared to a hop compared to a run? And if they're coming in with some Achilles or Soleus problem, well, what's enough? Is it 12 weeks of a progressive loading plan? Or am I actually testing someone to find out what it is with them? If you use something like, like a, a calf as an example, I use a really deliberate, it's my sort of anecdotal test based on some of the other stuff, but I genuinely want them to be able to do an eight second calf race, single leg calf race, three seconds up, two second old, three second down. And I want them to do at least 25 at that speed without failing. If you can do that, I'm probably going to get you hopping. And when I'm happy with you hopping, I'll get you running or I'll get you walk running. But most of us just go, Oh yeah, he's done a few weeks of strength work, which is good. It's been good strength work. He's pain-free telling me there's no problems anywhere else. 
uh, go on and try, try a little run. We'll be sensible. Let's try 10 minutes. But the forces generated, obviously, in that 10 minutes compared to what they thing are ridiculous. And, and it's just, and it, you know, you can make up your own outcome measures. You can have some arbitrary ones. You can spend time trying to find some, some, some researched and, and sort of accept, widely accepted stuff. But whatever it is you're going to do, let's be better as therapists at testing the things that we do with people. Um, I like that. Actually. Like I use the calf racing and I've stole, stolen some of that from the, like the ballet research and such that's come out. I mean, and I'm sure you're aware of it as well. And I think some of that is, is, is really great. We're probably guilty of having so many now that sometimes we're not necessarily sure what to use. And, and I think sometimes we almost get lost, lost in some of that, but we definitely need to be testing. And, and I'm bang on about this all the time. Like, how do you know if you're ready to do whatever it might be walking? If you haven't tested the kind of fundamental criteria that allow you to actually achieve that. And I think that's really important with this athlete specifically. Yeah. And again, which, you know, cyclists are a classic one. Well, what's their optimum range for this joint angle? Well, hang on, let's test what they got. See if they're in a ballpark range. And if it's enough, cool. Let, let's just go for it. Let's not be bogged down in it. But likewise, if someone's getting problems or performance de- deficits and they're reporting something, let's zoom in a bit on that then. And let's see if we can work on something a bit more with someone. All right. I've kept, I've, I could chat to you all, all evening, Mike, but and normally at the end of our podcast, we ask people just for, maybe some ideas for some resources or things you're enjoying. It doesn't even have to be specific to endurance. It could be a podcast you like, a book you're interested in, or a website you perhaps might steer people to. Is there anything you can share with our sort of listeners that might be uh, that's interesting you right now? Yeah, yeah. So the um, books are more of a theme of books right now for me. I've got really interested, and it, we've all got better, uh, the, the understanding the importance of communication and stuff. The type of books that I've found a load of, of benefit from, they're a bit out there compared to the standard stuff, but it's things to do with body language, commun- the soft skills in communication. Read a lot of books, like things like FBI profilers, those sort of things where they're not what you'd think you'd take so much from. They might just be background reading. But really, so I go, oh, yeah, I can imagine. I remember situations where those things of, you know, how people, like, not that obviously we're calling patients liars, but telltale signs of lies with body language. It's fascinating stuff to read, and, and some of it's applicable. The podcasts and websites are just, I got so many tabs and, and links set up everywhere. I found, if people are interested in this stuff, Number one podcast I'm telling people about right now is the Science of Sport podcast with Ross Tucker. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's really good. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, a PhD level sports scientist, world renowned, who can just break stuff down into layman's terms like like you've never seen. If you're interested in things around that and that sort of endurance performance, then you've got to jump on stuff by Steve Magnus. Steve Magnus, a running coach in the US, who's famous as being the whistleblower from the whole Salazar and Nike Oregon project stuff. But again, fascinating stuff there. And then I think just, you know, just try some, my key message to a lot of people that I, I mentor is, is just try something new. You know, the, the classic and the well-accepted stuff are there for a reason and we can't ignore those things. But I have found over the last few years so many useful resources in places I never expected to find them by just, just reaching out those tentacles a little bit further into, into the, the, the podcast or the book or the web or the TV programs that you might want to watch and just going, yeah, old me wouldn't have given this as much time and attention as I as now would. Uh, and therefore I'm just going to digest it and see where it takes me. Yeah, definitely. I am. Um, I read this, this is slightly, this is well off topic. Actually. I read this book because I was recommended it by one of our, um, the ladies at work and it's it's good she's called five star service and um i manage a clinic in, in london and it kind of i suppose it's applicable to my role but it wasn't like reading as such it's almost like this this guy's like bullet points of things that he's found really important i think he runs like hotels or something like that and it was just really interesting because it was just like lay talk it was no there was no hairs and graces nothing around it but it was really interesting because you know not all of it was applicable but there was loads of stuff in there that was applicable to life that was applicable to physio that was applicable to my management role that was applicable to my home life and, and such and it was just these like you know you read sometimes you you engage with something like you say that's completely fresh and when when they recommended it i was like this is going to be dense this is going to be so boring and actually i got to the end of it and thought i've probably taken like 
10 really good things from this book and you know like i say it wouldn't fit everybody but I, you know it was a it was an interesting read at the time and, and i've certainly taken some stuff from it so yeah i yeah. think this is something new i think earlier in life and earlier on our journey path we stress about the time and availability we have to do cpd and learning and we fall into the trap of it has to be absolutely specific and of course the points it does if you're trying to specialize in something or understand something deeper the other thing i do a lot of these days is i reread stuff i've read in the past or i re-listen to a podcast i might have listened to i've got books behind me that i've had 15 20 years and if i read it now I interpret it and understand it in a fundamentally different way to what I did 15 years ago or five years ago, because I'm different. I've evolved some for worse, but a lot for better. I look at them and go, yeah, I, I get that a bit more now, or I actually see it a bit differently to how I read it before. And that now applies better to everything I do day to day. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Right. Final thing. Um, if people want to engage with your content, if people want to find you, if people want to contact you, don't give out your mobile number at this point, how, how is best to sort of engage with you? What's the, what's the preferred method if they want to kind of see your content or engage with you? Social media is always the easiest one. My, um, my stronghold has always been my Facebook page, the endurance physio and the endurance physio and Instagram with underscore between each word. And then I'm at the Endurance PT over on Twitter because I think somewhere, somewhere in the world, someone had the audacity to pinch the Endurance Physio. So at the Endurance PT and, and uh, I pretty much post regularly, as you mentioned earlier, on, on all of those. But uh, always drop me a message or, or anything. I reply to everyone. It might be a bit of a delay, but I always reply and, and try and help people as much as people have helped me in the past. Great. That's awesome, mate. Thanks for joining us tonight, mate. I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry about the, some of the technical hiccups, but uh, I appreciate your patience with us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We'll keep bringing you the gold. Follow us on Instagram at the.healthspace. And for any questions or ideas for future content, email us at thehealthspace.co at gmail.com.